Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Tarek Kassam, CEO at Celsius Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tarek. Very glad to be here, Rahul, and great to meet you. Yeah, you as well. So Tarek, to kick us off, walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I am a medical doctor by training, trained at University of Toronto in Canada, but I have been working on the business side of biotech through my entire career. So right after med school, I started working on Wall Street as a biotech investment banker, a stock analyst. And then after spending quite a number of years on Wall Street, I actually moved to the corporate side. So I spent a number of years at Millennium and Takeda working in business development, corporate development, doing M&A work for them. And then more recently, I've been working in innovative biotech. So I worked with Atlas Venture for a number of years, helping found the company Obsidian Therapeutics, which is a cell and gene therapy company, also located here in Cambridge, and then started working with Celsius Therapeutics, joined them as their first CEO about three and a half years ago. Great. Tarek, talk to us a little bit about that experience of going from finance to then working in biotech to then working on the VC side and what you perhaps took away from each of those experiences to help you get to where you are now. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, so we're going through each of these one by one. I think there's within this, I would say, world of professional services, like investment banking, like consulting, to some degree, like working at hedge funds, there's a certain rigor, exactitude, and intensity that is a very, very valuable thing to have in your toolkit. A lot of that was drummed into me hard when starting from my very first days as a little wee puppy investment banker. What I did learn, though, was that that doesn't always translate to the operating company environment. So that transition from working at a hedge fund to working at Millennium Pharmaceuticals in 2009 was notable because I wasn't all working with you know, young turbocharged professionals who wanted to be there till 11 o'clock at night every night and who weren't necessarily trying to outdo each other with their raw intellect. A thing, a major thing that I learned from that transition is that you really have to adapt to your environment. And just because you adapt to the environment doesn't necessarily mean that your saw becomes dull. Your saw can still stay very, very sharp, but part of your power also comes from the relationships that you build with your coworkers. And it took a little bit of time before I learned to manage well in that environment and not be like the hedge fund fish out of water. Thankfully, I had some excellent mentors and excellent guidance there who encouraged me to chill out from time to time. And then moving from the pharma environment to the entrepreneurial environment was also very different because there, within entrepreneurial biotech, there's definitely a drive to cut through the heart of the niceties to get to the center of the problem. And so in many ways, it was almost like a, it felt like an intermediate step back towards that professional services environment. And that actually also took a little while for me to really get comfortable with. But now that I've spent, what, the last six, seven years uh, working in biotech startups or other privately backed biotech, it starts to feel like home. 
Well, I don't imagine myself going back to pharma at any point in the future. I do think that the biotech executive, the biopharma executive of the future should be someone who can function well in both of those environments, because each of those types of company has something unique that they bring to the table. Pharma can do things that biotechs can't. Biotechs can do things that pharma can't. So we need to coexist. And ideally, the adept, effective biopharma executive of the future should be able to swim in both ponds. I'm curious, being first-time CEO now at Celsius, and if I could ask you to reflect for a minute, based on those diverse experiences that you've had, what were some non-obvious learnings that you had to make being in the seat as a CEO? Just for our listeners to think about perhaps their future CEOs or entrepreneurs as well. I also had the benefit of being a first-time CEO during a pandemic through a unprecedented biotech bubble yeah. followed by an unprecedented biotech crash. Yeah. So these are dog years, not human years that we're talking. There's a few things that I learned. I'll focus on two things that I learned from being in the CEO seat that were very different than my previous role where I was the chief operating officer of a venture-backed biotech. So the first is external facing, which is more than any other role that I've been in, people notice how you show up. If you are grumpy, perturbed, or cheerful, or optimistic, that tends to have a ripple effect in the organization. The challenging part is you don't always know that that ripple effect has happened until it's far too late. Because by the time the word comes back to you, it's like, oh, you seemed kind of stressed three months ago. You know, the die is already cast. Yeah. So, so it's very important to maintain very clear sense of how your demeanor affects others and how that could be interpreted externally. So that's the first part. The second part is something that Ben Horowitz, is it Ben Horowitz? Ben Horowitz has yeah, written right. about extensively in that one of the hardest parts of being a CEO is managing your own psychology. Because it's very easy to become overly enthusiastic when certain things are going well and to become excessively negative when things are going badly. Usually the challenges that you encounter when things are going badly can be overcome. Usually the things that seem like they are going to make you and everybody else into a zillionaire and be extraordinarily helpful for patients, they might not happen in the way you expect either. The ability to maintain an even keel throughout that is something that is very very hard to do. It looks easy from the outside. Once you're in the job, it does not feel that way. I would just encourage anybody who's considering being a CEO to recognize that that will happen. It is natural and normal and not to get too fussed about it and to reconcile oneself with a certain quota of sleepless nights because that is actually part of the job. Yeah. Both of those learnings really resonated with me. Something I had to learn as well. So really well articulated, Tariq. Thanks for sharing that. On the emotional aspects of being a CEO, and also just fundamentally in terms of how you work, I'm curious what operating models, let's say, you've put into place to be able to remain relatively even and on keel, irrespective of, even keel, I should say, irrespective of the circumstances. And would love to just unpack how you set up your day and how you work. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. So there's no one formula. Everybody is going to have their own systems. I think it's important to have a certain semblance of stability and routine outside of the workplace, much of which I get personally from friends, family, and a heavy dose of strenuous exercise, which tends to calm me down quite a lot. It's like Cesar Milan, right? Like the exercise then affection, <laughs> right? Yeah. Make sure to tire the dog out. Being able to tune one's leadership style to the moment, to me, feels like the key to being able to feel like one is in control of one's emotions at work. So let me just give you the example. There's a wonderful article, I think it's written by Daniel Goleman, the emotional intelligence guy, about situational leadership and noting that there's different kinds of leadership styles that are necessary in different occasions. Sometimes at work, you can be the coaching leader and the coaching manager. Other times you can be you know, super, super supportive at all times. Other times you might actually have to light a bit of a fire under people. Other times, instead of being authoritative, you might need to be authoritarian. Those times are rare, but they do occur. The thing that I've learned is, is that Earlier in my career, I felt like I needed to have a consistent style. And this is the key that the Goldman article told me, which was you can actually change styles depending on the situation. And that's actually better. So for me personally, I feel like one of the things that helps me sort of maintain a balance is knowing that during times when things are cruising, I have the ability to drop more into kind of coaching mode, encouraging mode, authoritative. I know this direction we should go in, but I don't necessarily need to tell you how to do it. At times when things are looking less great, that's when maybe I need to shift modes a little bit. But knowing that I have that in my toolkit makes me feel more relaxed about being able to address the situation. Thanks for unpacking that for us. So now switching gears, Tarek, before we jump into the work that you're pursuing at Celsius, talk to us a little bit about where precision medicine is now. And from your vantage point, where do the opportunities still lie and fundamental challenges as it relates to precision medicine? Yeah. This is a topic that I think about a lot. And I go back to when I was a medical student. I remember I was in a hospital working with patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And I remember a physician, we were seeing a patient with ulcerative colitis and a physician saying to me, you know, I think ulcerative colitis is like three or four different diseases, but they all have kind of a final common pathway. So we all call them the same thing, but they are different. And we just don't know how to unpack that difference. And that really stuck with me because that's kind of the core of precision medicine, right? If you can take diseases that on the surface from a clinical phenotype standpoint look the same, but actually identify subgroups within them, well, then you have an opportunity to treat each of those subgroups differently in a way that is very effective. Now, where are we with precision medicine right now? I think there's been a precision medicine version 1.0 that has been really, really successful that started with Gleevec and is now carried through to companies like Blueprint, and there's a whole plethora of them now, right? Companies that use cancer genetics to identify druggable driver mutations that you can make drugs towards and then you know, help create a response rate to tumors. And that's great. That is very cancer-specific. And even within oncology, still only about 30 to 40% of cancers have druggable driver mutations. Now the world is evolving towards a we'll call it precision medicine 2.0, which goes beyond oncology, where we're using broader point of view on genetics to use GWAS, for example, to identify associations, to look for rare mutations in disease gene and genes that may cause disease. 
you know, there's been several companies, most recently Prometheus has been really successful doing this kind of approach. And that's great too. But there's still blind spots there because there isn't informative GWAS or genetic information for every good target. And we know that clinical phenotype is kind of the confluence of a lot of different things, certainly genetics, but also environment, for example. So the world is really ready, I think, for a new kind of precision medicine and a new approach to understanding precision targets and precision populations, because there's a whole unexplained world between genetics and clinical phenotype. And that's where I think many of the interesting companies right now are working. And I am talking my book, but that's because I'm passionate about it. Yeah, great. Thanks for that overview. And I'm curious, are you seeing software play a role in precision medicine 2.0 right now? Or do you think that's going to be more precision medicine 3.0? Software is everywhere. Software is included in, I think, one through three and certainly four through whatever. But software is really important for precision medicine 2.0 because a lot of the analyses that are done on GWAS, for example, and these large population data sets are, I mean, that is a software analysis. And many of these analyses are machine learning enabled. They have to be to deal with gigantic, messy data sets and find signal within them. So that is a trend that has started and will not stop. And I'm actually really excited about what's possible there too. Yeah, certainly agree. Okay, so now let's talk about Celsius. So talk to us about what you're working on and the company mission. Yeah, so going back to that concept of what's next in precision medicine and the idea that we need to find a way to look in that space in between genetics and clinical phenotype, that's the whole idea of Celsius. The company was started actually by one of the pioneers in precision medicine 1.0, Christoph Langauer, who used to be the CSO at Blueprint Medicines. And he wanted to create a new kind of precision medicine company. And that search took him to the work of Aviv Ragev, who was at the time at the Broad Institute, who pioneered many of the innovations in single cell sequencing and specifically single cell RNA-seq. So that is just an incredibly powerful way of understanding gene expression in tissues and cell populations and tissue samples, because you can actually get a transcriptome of every cell that's in a tissue sample. And you can see which cells are there. You can make a census of all the different cells, and you can actually then figure out what these cells are doing. Are they playing out programs that are, for example, causing inflammation? Most powerfully, you can compare tissue samples from a healthy patient and a diseased patient and look to see what's different in their cell populations. Use that to drive the identification of targets, and if you get a large enough set of samples, the identification of patient subsets. So at Celsius, what we do is we gather large numbers of tissue samples from collaborations we have with academics all over the world. We perform single-cell RNA sequencing, and then we use that to search for new targets that may be driving disease and patient subsets who may benefit from the drugging of those targets. Using that approach, we've come up with a, a lead program, which is an antibody directed towards the target TREM1, which is a target that had been sort of floating around the literature for a little bit, but where we were able to identify a specific cell type and specific therapeutic settings where we think this is actually going to be a very, very important target, specifically for IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, but also potentially other inflammatory indications. We have an antibody directed towards TREM1, It is moving towards the clinic dizzyingly quickly. We've finished the dosing on GLP-TOX right now, and we are hoping to file 
an IND for this project and get it to the clinic in the first part of next year. Awesome. Very exciting progress, Tarek. I'm curious, given what you're going after and the underlying technology and also your background, both from a physician perspective, but then also from a finance perspective, what's the indication selection framework that you tend to use when there are so many possibilities out there that you could chase? Definitely. In the case of what we've been working on, you know, for a variety of historic reasons, many of our efforts in inflammation have been focused in inflammatory bowel disease. Part of that is due to the ability to access tissue. But I do think it's that sort of magical intersection of the overall size of the market, the unmet medical need, and the competitive intensity. And we all know that inflammatory bowel disease is a competitive space, but it is also a really large market, and the unmet medical need is really significant. Patients flip on and off these therapies over a period of years. There might be on multiple therapies with different mechanisms of action. The smartest person I know in inflammatory bowel disease was saying that it's an incredibly important space for drug development because patients don't respond to therapies for very long. Especially if you've got a therapy where maybe there's a precision approach where you can identify a patient population who is likely to respond better, that feels to me like a niche that will be great for patients and great for science and great for a product. Wonderful. And you talked a bit about the progress that you're making at Celsius and you know you raised capital in the early part of, of 2022, and the environment has certainly changed since that point. I'm curious how the current environment informs how you're approaching, how you execute right now. And also from a value creation perspective, are you thinking differently about subsequent rounds than you were perhaps a year ago? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that includes all of the above. So I think it is prudent financial management in this environment to take a cautious approach to spending and, for example, company growth, how we advance our programs. Do we advance them all at once or do we stagger them? So we are, without peeking too far under the hood, we've actually taken a lot of that into account for our plans for next year and thereafter. And in terms of then how that actually impacts our fundraising, if this were two and a half, three years ago, we would be in a position to raise X dollars that would get us through multiple value creating events. But in the current environment, we might end up raising 50% of X or 30% of X because investors are a little bit reluctant to put additional capital out there, but that can get us through a set of clear and notable value inflection points. And yes, that puts more work on us because then we're going to have to raise money again after that. But if that's what the investor world wants, then we have to dance that dance. Yeah, And so Understanding what we can do and what we can deliver on a more limited amount of capital in the context of a more modest company build is, I think, the way for companies to make it through this, assuming that we have, you know, for, for companies like us that actually have programs that they want to move forward. And given the, the change that's happened over the last year, curious to hear your thoughts on perhaps the evolving role of pharma in the biotech ecosystem and any thoughts around how that might change or do you foresee it remaining the same as it has been over the last 12 to 24 months? This is one of my favorite topics. I am an outlier among my biotech pals because I'm always a pharma defender. And maybe that's because I spent a number of years working at Takeda, which I loved and they were great people and, and I learned a lot and I always felt like they were trying to do the right thing. I think that pharma has an incredibly important role to play in this little biotech desert that we find ourselves in right now. You know, the things that I keep on hearing, for example, from friends of mine are 
that they're having difficulty closing rounds because they can't find a lead or that there's an extremely important and exciting program that they have that they just can't fund with their current financing because their venture investors want them to focus on something else. So these are two situations where I could really imagine pharma having an important role and stepping in and keeping the environment alive. Now, that puts a little bit more work on the hands of pharma. It's hard to do creative deals, and it's really hard also to do creative and clever business development in an environment where you're actively being showered, drenched with opportunity. I can't even imagine what it's like being a search and evaluation person in pharma these days. That's just must be like, you know, you know, drowning from the firehouse. But I think that pharma's got a really important role to play here. And especially now that this downturn has, it's proven itself to not be a temporary phenomenon. What was the thing? We thought that inflation was transitory and then it wasn't. You know, this biotech downturn is not transitory either. So what that means is that management teams and boards of directors have likely become much more realistic about value expectations. And therefore, that value gap between what biotechs think they're worth and what pharma thinks they're worth should be narrowing. And so hopefully we can start getting some deals done and some creative deals done. Once one company does some creative deals, then other companies look at that and see that it's validated. And then it's easier to convince senior leadership to do that deal. I am hoping for good stuff starting in a few weeks at JP Morgan. Good. And so given the environment and coupling that with the risk that's inherent in everything we do in biotech, I'm curious how you're talking to your team, whether it be leadership or the entire team around how they should be thinking about the current space we're in and perhaps operating models for them as well. Yeah. I heard a line from someone that, you know, I probably took to heart a little bit, you know, late, but I think it's it's true, is that if you treat people like monkeys, expect a circus. Like it's very important, I think, for leadership to present an honest assessment of what the environment is like and be clear about what the challenges are. And so I've been having those discussions with our team saying, look, the biotech environment right now is the financing environment is really bad. And so as a result, we need to be very thoughtful about our spend. We need to be focusing on those experiments and projects that give us the biggest bang for our buck and that are definitively on the critical path versus those that are the nice to haves. Because every day at the company is money. Every experiment is money. If we have opportunities where we can channel our resources into things that are likely to be high impact to patients and high impact to the company, we should be doing so. I think that management teams, and I'm sure that most companies are doing this, should be realistic with their teams about this and outline the real challenges. Look, we have to raise money this year, and we're going to be doing it in the context of a serious market headwinds. So it's likely going to take a while. And, you know, going back to the thing we talked about earlier, you know, you might see me coming into the office looking kind of disheveled some days because this is going to be a stressful process. By telling people that, I think it improves psychological safety for people to wonder about what is happening and for people to recognize that this is not something that is Celsius specific, for example. Yeah, that's a great point, Tark. Before we move to another topic, I was curious, you know, if you reflect back on the early days of, of your career, let's say, you know, pre-CEO, what's a piece of advice that you wish you could have provided your younger self knowing everything that you now know? A piece of advice 
that oh, there's so many of them, which is a good thing, right? Because that means that you're learning and adapting. The one piece of advice that if I had to name one thing, I wish I had known earlier, or at least started to adapt into my repertoire earlier, was really trying to put myself in the minds and the ears and the brain of whoever it is that I am speaking with or negotiating with or working with. I think for the early part of my career, and maybe this was based on you know my cutting my teeth as an investment banker, I think I did too much bulldozing and not enough empathic listening. And when I see executives now sometimes struggle, it's because they're not don't always put themselves in the mind of the listener of whoever it is that they're talking to and understanding what the follow-on implications and downstream impacts are. But that kind of empathy for the other person, and even if you're trying to convince them of something that they don't want to be convinced of, but just thinking, how is this person going to react to the points that I am making? Or in a negotiation, if I am company X on the other side of this table, what am I scared of? What am I trying to protect against, which is therefore why I'm making a fuss about this obscure provision in this agreement? If you can do that, then you can actually persuade people. You can get to yes in a negotiation because you can actually understand what the other party is concerned about and what you can potentially do to negotiate around that. That's something that I wish I had known earlier. That would have saved many, many hours of painful discussions with people. And it certainly would have saved many, many thousands of dollars with lawyers during negotiations as we were bouncing up against each other without really listening to each other. That's great advice. And on the heels of that salient advice, Tarek, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing a bit about all that you've learned in your career across biotech and wishing you and the Celsius team continued success in the coming months and years. Well, thank you, Rahul. This was great. And I look forward to hearing many more excellent biotech 2050 podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.